1: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Middle Eastern Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Robert Elliott, the host of the channel. Today, I'll be speaking with Dr. Christopher Houston about his new book, Istanbul: City of the Fearless, Urban Activism, Coup d'État, and Memory in Turkey. Hi, Dr. Houston. Welcome to the show.
0: Hi, Robert, and thanks very much for hosting me.
1: Glad to have you on. Chris, I, I wonder if you can begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself. Okay, good.
0: Um. So I am a professor of anthropology. Uh, I work at Macquarie University in Sydney, Australia. Um, I've been teaching in the anthropology program there for, for a long time now, 15 years. And before that, I was uh, uh, in, in my first sort of position. I was worked in the anthropology department in New Zealand. Um, my research ever since my PhD field work um which was actually done in Istanbul in the years nineteen ninety four to nineteen the beginning of nineteen ninety seven so my research for for most of my proper university life um has been to do with turkey um and more precisely has nearly always been uh field work and concerns with the city of Istanbul so in a way i i guess i, I would say that i'm probably an anthropologist of, of Istanbul um that's uh, yeah that's been the main focus where i where i've sort of kept coming back to over the years the the some of the themes of of my work <coughs> have been um around the question of turkish politics in in the broader sense um and by the broader sense i mean that that has incorporated a a long interest in in istanbul in its development in the politics that are uh, involved in its um in its growth in its inequalities in its urban affordances <clears throat> in its Um, political symbolisms built into the city by various administrations Um, and, of course, political movements that take as their object of transformation the city um, in in various ways. Uh, My first – actually, my my field work in Istanbul in 1994 came about because I had just started – uh, my PhD in Australia, we have a different way of doing the PhD, or we did then, than the way that you would be more familiar with in in the US. Um, basically, we don't do any coursework, uh, which is actually a pretty bad bad was a bad feature of the PhD. So you enrol in the PhD after you've done your undergraduate study and a small thesis in an honours year, and you're, when I did it, my supervisor said, oh, where do you think you'll go? Because I had been in, to Istanbul earlier and lived there earlier. <clears throat> I thought to myself, oh, well, I think Istanbul is a place that I really am interested in and love and hate and, in the, in equal measures. Um, I think I'll go and do my, my research there. And they said, fine, good. And by then I went off for two and a half years. There was no emails or internet or anything. So I wrote long letters to him by hand, um, and lived in Istanbul for those those years and actually did a study on 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 the Istanbul Council, which had been won by Refar Party in nineteen ninety-four, um, and questions around what a supposedly Islamist political party, political force does when they get control of the city, of a city council, um, can we really understand their policies as being a reflection of some type of Islamist program, um, etc. And over the years, it became really clear to me that one of the, the defining fractures in Islamic politics in Turkey at that time was the question of Kurds, the Kurdish issue, Kurds within the party, religious Kurds. Um, and Turkish nationalism and the relationship between the type of religious politics that seemed to be you know, coming out of the Refah party and those religious politics relationship with Turkish nationalism, which, of course, was always going, going to be a problem for religious Kurds. So as it turned out, yeah, that, that became the focus of, of my dissertation, in fact, the, the first book which was on which was on the Turkish state Islamism and the Kurdish question um
1: yeah that's that's a fairly long introduction <laughs> So how did you come upon this project okay, so,
0: as I said, ever since nineteen ninety four I've been going back to Istanbul whenever I can um Probably, because uh, this, this project has been has been a, a long time in the making, I would say nearly a decade ago, probably, I can't exactly remember, 2009, 2010, I was in Istanbul walking with a friend, <clears throat> and the friend, uh, we went past his old school and sort of out of the blue, this is how I remember it, out of the blue he said something like, oh, I remember a day that the whole student body at a school assembly, we... um." It, we stood there and we put our hands in the air and we made fists and we started shouting slogans. And I said, "Oh, well, wow, wow, that's interesting. What do the teachers do, etc." And he said, "Oh, you yeah, know, we we didn't listen to them." Um, it was that little germ of a of a conversation which was the be- beginning of this project because I he would have been speaking around. He couldn't remember the year exactly. He would have been speaking around something that happened in 1977, 78, 79, perhaps. Um, and the more that I then spoke with him about, oh, what was it like living in Istanbul then? What, why you know, was that common? What was the schools like, et cetera, et cetera? What was it like to be a high school student? Were you a member of a political um Grouping at that time with the political groupings, were there more than one at the schools? How did you relate to each other, et etc.? Cetera, et cetera. As those questions um, were answered by him, I realised, and of course, uh, so I realised there was a, a really fascinating, a um, uh, fascinating historical project. If I to change it into sort of an intellectual project, which is. Um, was which was to examine at a really basic level what was it like to be a political activist in the in the years before the military coup of nineteen eighty. So that was that was sort of the the origins of, of the project. I mean of course e- everyone who studies Turkey knows that the this twelfth September coup um is is it has been or or was a defining moment in in the evolution of Turkish politics, or at least, of course, that's how it's normally spoken about. Um, but I realised back then in two thousand and ten that when when you actually start to just scratch below the surface and and read about the coup, um, that there there's sort of there was quite a bit of literature in Turkish about <clears throat> about the coup itself, what happened, and what it was like afterwards Um, but I mean you'd be surprised Robert not that much actually about what it was really like and there was a hardly anything about what about the the reasons for for the political activism and the huge sort of explosion of political movements um, that sort of were dominated Istanbul's streets institutions educational facilities etc from 1976 to 1980 Um, and on top of that of of course when you read when i read anyway general political histories of turkey i found that the coup was usually spoken about in in something like this in these terms Uh, the streets of istanbul became un ungovernable and unmanageable there was Gangs of uh, crazy or sort of talked like this gangs of crazy marauding youths um who had no real in brackets had, who had no real political program but just sort of liked the violence or something um fighting with each other uh and then that fighting moved into into very extreme forms of violence in, including the killing of <clears throat> each. Each other by those gangs of use etc and finally in nineteen eighty thank God the military stepped in um, to restore order in a way that was a really common narrative and um, of course so the book is is examining both a little bit about how that narrative was became so dominant that's really the the, the way that the Turkish junta after the, the military junta after the coup spoke about uh, the city and justified the, the intervention. Um, but obviously there was a hugely complex range of, of political issues, a hugely complex way of interacting with the city, a fascinating array of political groups, factions, um, and parties that were were involved in organising uh, social movements in Istanbul before the coup, um, and they a, and they and they an untold story about what it was like to be to to live in Istanbul, spe- especially as a political activist in those years. You know, over and above anything to do with 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 violence, which of course was an you know, an important aspect of the sort of the the experience of living in Istanbul.
1: So the the number of different groups, especially on the left, is is really overwhelming. I I remember reading uh, Lipovsky's classic text and him mentioning that nearly every ideologue had their their own party. Uh, Can you tell us a little bit about some of the major camps, major players and major divisions during this period? Sure. So
0: if we go back a little bit, bit to another another coup in Turkey, um actually Robert, as you briefly spoke about before we before we began this disarm um, podcast um your own work is even going back potentially to the nineteen forties um, and we, we can trace back certain types of 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 leftist impulses, people um maybe gathering around journals. Um, way back – well, not way back, but back in the 1940s. If we move forward a little bit, in 1960, with the sixty sixty one, 61, the coup and the sort of the reorganisation of the Turkish constitution, then um, that new constitution, ironically, was a constitution that allowed much more political pluralism than any other constitution in the history of the Turkish Republic. And one of the outcomes was that was for the first time it was legal to organize a political party or a, a political grouping on the basis of class. Um, before that, you know, the Turkish constitution and the other uh, Turks political party had always banned political organizing on class grounds, given that at the core, we can say Kemalism is sort of a type of corporatism. Um, so. After 1961, we see the institution of the Turkish Labour Party or the Labour Party of Turkey. Um, And that party, because of the electoral system, actually manages to, to get parliamentarians into the parliament throughout the 1960s. By the time, of course, we come to the 1971 coup, for interesting reasons, after after that intervention by the Turkish military, that party sort of is closed down, and therefore its its members are dispersed. Um, and once once things return to sort of civilian government after that intervention, after the seventy one intervention, it seemed to me from my research that that was that was the the really important period where. The, the militants, the the activists who who had been probably in the nineteen sixties gathered more or less under the umbrella of the Turkish Labour Party in the in Turkish tip. Um that I mean there's probably more complex exactly than this, but that those groupings then fractured and flourished so that by 1973 or 1974 which is where i sort of fairly arbitrarily begin the the story of of sort of istanbul in this period by 1974 or 75 let's say there is a huge range of political factions political parties political fractions factions and fractions um Organising in Istanbul, the the th- if we had to put them into a, sort of the main groupings, we we can do that. There was a, a, a sort of a Soviet-aligned Turkish Communist Party, um, and all all of these groups had had um, over the over this decade had groupings that split off from them. And on top of that, they had very active youth movements as well. And sometimes the affiliated youth movements had a different name to the to the main political party. But there was a sort of a a a Soviet aligned, and that's an interesting question around what that meant and what the relationship was. um, Grouping, there was a, a a grouping which, as far as I could tell from my interviews, was the most influential sort of. Faction in Istanbul, which was um, a sort of it was called Dev Devyol Revolutionary Way. Um, that was they presented themselves in the in, well in the interviews. People were always talking about this in memory, twenty five years later, because in a way that's the other concern of the book is what is how how do people remember also sort of uh, the political activities of their youth? They presented. Um, that party presented itself as sort of a middle way between <clears throat> the Soviet-aligned leftist Communist Party and the Maoist-inspired sort of revolutionary groups, which was the third grouping in Istanbul. So the centre one, Devrimci Yol, um, sort of took inspiration from Latin America and South American politics, from Cuba, from Sheikovara, um, and some of their sort of police chief political strategies were more aligned with a type of yeah, guerrilla revolutionary activism um than, for example, much and they were much more active in sort of that type of politics than were the, the Turkish Communist Party and its affiliations. So yeah, roughly we can say There was three broad streams of leftist politics operating in Istanbul in the 1970s, the Maoist groups, the the Turkish Communist Party aligned with the Soviet Union, and then a very big centrist movement which there was equally indigenous. They're all indigenous Turkish political movements, um, but which was sometimes able to work with with some groups of the Maoists and some groups of the communists. Um, yeah, so Rob, that that's that's some of the the that that's the main ones, of course. As um is it Lipovsky and and other people note, if you do the the sort of political genealogies, you can get up to forty-five or fifty groupings at that time, some of which shut down and another group opens up in their place or someone fractures uh, splits
1: off from a party and then sets up a new, a new party. Now, so we, we talked a bit about uh, the left. Now, what does the political right mean at this time? What sort of parties are we, are we seeing?
0: Okay, so this was interesting in my interviews. Um, leftist activists, of course, one of the main things they remembered was the. That- the terrible fractionalism <clears throat> um, and the fact that they were struggling as much against other leftist groups as they were against the right it seemed from my interviews that the the the, uh, the rightist groups in Istanbul the rightist group in Istanbul was much more unified um, <clears throat> there was and the other interesting thing about the writers group is that it it had a much more or Link to the to the parliamentary right wing group. So this is in in one way we're talking about the the whole sort of gamut of social movement politics, uh, but at the same time the parliamentary political system until 1980 is operating in Turkey with with elections, both general elections and council elections, um, and so people might know that the there was a there was a a string of coalitions throughout the whole nineteen seventies because no one party was ever able to get a dominant majority, um, and that allowed for the Turkish Nationalist Party uh, to actually move to, to to move into the the official government by making a coalition with Süleyman Demirel's um, Democratic Party. That that sort of tradition coming way back from the 1950s. Um, so the the nationalists, the very extreme right-wing nationalists, both had an official place at the dinner table of Turkish parliamentary politics. Um, when they were a very small member of the fish of the government, but they were given disproportionate numbers of ministries, including in the late 1970s of the Education Department, which was probably one of the the, the most disastrous out had some of the most disastrous outcomes, given that the the um the right wing nationalists got control of of administering high schools and some teachers colleges in the main. Um, so yeah, they they were a very I mean their political ideology is basically anti communist on the negative side and on the pro sort pro side extremely Turkish nationalist. Um I mean every party in Turkey is nationalist but the, the flavor of nationalism is different. The the right wing opposition to the leftist groups, so sort of the street opposition were extremely nationalist. Um, I mean you could almost say in some ways racially nationalist with their with their talk about the Turkish race, Turkish blood um turkish culture etc and uh, they were also violently anti-communist so that they were you no know, probably more than more than most of the leftist groups were responsible for um introducing forms of of violence assassinations and you know, killings etc. Which really did escalate things by the light by the late nineteen seventies.
1: And for those who might not be familiar with the Turkish right at this time, what are some of these um, you know, active groups that are engaged in the street street fighting and some of the violence?
0: Uh you mean in the So which which groups, in particular, the leftist and the and the right group, or
1: so? Um, we we talked a, a little bit about um, Dev Deviol and uh, some of these, you know, groups that had a, a strong uh, youth component. Um, is there sort of a right wing? Yeah, um,
0: yeah. So the in a way, the 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 nationalist Action Party is the official. Uh, party of the turkish right wing nationalists in the parliament their youth wing um though of course there was always a because their youth wing is involved in is clearly involved in a lot of of violence and uh sort of violent organizing and training among themselves to use weapons etc uh their youth wing the the link was sort of downplayed um but the so they the youth wing named themselves um uh, the Grey Wolves, uh, and or and but their official name in some ways was was something called the Idealists in Turkish Ulkuculat. Um, of course, according to the Turkish left, they were fighting against fascists, and so they they never called them the Turkish nationalists, or they never called them you no know, Grey Wolves. They just said no. The situation in Istanbul was that we were we were fighting against fascists who were killing people and who were you know assassinating trade union leaders or were uh, or uh, targeting people who were involved in leftist social movements um, from civil society, and that they got forced into a sort of a, a defence of their social movements really quickly because of the violence coming out of the the um, the what they called the fascists and what the fascists themselves call called the sort of the 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 nationalists. Um yeah, so the 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 street the street engagement is is pretty strongly between the Grey Wolves on the right side and a variety of of leftist groups who were also inclined towards certain types of violence because they um they believed in certain types of revolutionary theories that they may, maybe were predi- predicated on successful you know, people's liberation movements, etc. So, yeah, they're the chief actors, I guess.
1: So, within this book, you, you talk a lot about something called spatial politics. Can you tell us a little bit about what this means and the role that this plays in the text? Okay, so because the book
0: is is really focused on what it was like for political activists of both leftist and rightist factions, what it was like for those people to do politics in Istanbul at time to be a member of a group, um, to protest in the city, uh, to you no know, to try and to try and uh to try and realize their political program um, I, I realize that that yep yeah, that the book and and their project is in one way organized to changing trans, transforming istanbul transforming istanbul's factories transforming istanbul's institutions transforming istanbul's um councils and what those councils can provide to people, transforming Istanbul's slums. So all, all together, that sort of transformative political orientation towards the city and making the city different and making the city uh, the place that, you know, is the crucible of an emerging, for the leftist activists, of a sort of an emerging socialist society that slowly comes out of changes that you make in living in that city itself. Um, for all of those reasons, uh, bringing those together, I, I summarise that as sort of these were political movements that were involved in spatial politics at the core. I mean, changing the social relationships of Istanbul, which also changes the spatial relationships of Istanbul, etc. So, yeah, spatial politics on that, on that, uh, under that definition, is is just a useful organising term for you no know, somehow or other getting a handle on on the sort of the focus of of transformation that the leftist groups in particular were you know focused on
1: so w- within this how exactly would a group make their presence known like how would they say you know this is this is this is our territory it's not yours good question so Istanbul in the nineteen seventies is
0: nothing like it is today. It's not a mega city, but it's still a really big city. Um millions of people living there. And a city where um I mean the the numbers are hard to know, but let's say at least fifty percent of people are living in what in Turkish uh are called Gejikondu. Um but we can say in English, fifty percent of people are living in informal housing and or shanty towns. Okay, they're not really slums because they're the sort of that's not necessarily the, the best word to use because it may not translate from English into what the this, these suburbs were like in, in Istanbul. But let's say fifty percent of of people in Istanbul, maybe more, were living in suburbs that over the last that. Sorry, since the nineteen, let's say nineteen fifty, 1950, but nineteen fifty-five, were new suburbs in Istanbul that were set up by people moving to Istanbul themselves, occupying state land on the edge of the city, building their own houses, um, setting up their own social organisation, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, because the, the state was both was insufficiently finance was not financially able to you know put down roads or, or or do have an urban plan for, for growth like that? Basically, they're like self self service cities, um, suburbs. Huge amounts of Istanbul in the then, 1970s, then nineteen seventies were relatively new, uh, informal housing shanty towns, um, in which which uh, in which these political movements recruited m- most of their their militants from. Um, so those shanty towns that came clear in my, in the interviews that I did with people were were one of the, the, um, the core arenas of spatial politics, um, groups, groups emerged from those shanty towns, the political factions that emerged from them were, were not just sort of People who agreed ideologically with each other on a certain type of program—they were you know, people who are related to each other, um, maybe whose families had migrated to Istanbul from the same parts of Turkey. Uh, so there's a lot of other affective relationships in the political factions, which uh, over and beyond the you know, sort of some rationalist explanation that people joined a political faction because they believed in immediate revolution or they believed in setting up a you know workers cooperative or they believed in some type of Maoist program of of peasant revolution or something. Um so those groupings are very strong in the shanti shanties of Istanbul. Uh Robert I've just got a message. I've oh, reconnected, sorry. <laughs> That's okay. Yeah. So those um those political groupings uh are Are emerging from the shanty towns and of course they're they're working there, they're organising people, the political movements begin to become um, movements of social transformation, they might for example have students coming into the shanty towns who are doctors, who are studying uh, disciplines at universities that would be useful in the life of of people who are basically living in, in very poor conditions. Um, with not much council organisation of programmes into those suburbs. Um, and, of course, those suburbs then beca- became under attack from the right-wing militants, and therefore they also set up their own you know, defence committees to defend themselves against strangers coming into the city, sorry, into those suburbs. So the, um, the shantytowns of Istanbul were a core arena of political struggle of spatial politics, um, and political groupings there you no know, by the by 1977 1978 were, were arming themselves in defense against attacks coming from you no know, militants of the the nationalists and or of course because some of those that those right that right-wing group had um, affiliations with the Turkish police also against police attacks or gendarme attacks into those suburbs as well
1: so um is there any way that I mean traveling through Istanbul one could tell whose territory they were in? You could. Apparently.
0: Friend in interviewees reported to me that they were they were connoisseurs of the built environment um and in slogans that were going up on walls. Um Connoisseurs of listening to their environment, because if there was a, a march coming down the street, they would listen to what the, the slogans were being uh, were being chanted, and then they had an, had a good idea about which political grouping it was. If if the group that they were in had good relations with that group, then they may not worry; they may join in, for example. But if they knew that it was a, a, a rival political organization, uh, they'd have to take some other type of action. So, yeah, the whole city became involved you could say in a slogan war that was what a friend said to me that says it was like a the city we were constantly painting over other people's slogans getting control of a of a university getting control of a dormitory getting control of a of a public area meant that you you also in, engaged in a sort of a, a, a literal spatial politics in terms of you know putting putting your your visual presence, stamping your visual presence there in that space with your your slogans, etc. Um Yeah, well that, that was a one of the really fascinating I guess parts of the of the repertoires of political practice that um were engaged in by those leftist groups. Not so much by the the right wing. I mean they did have their slogans as well. Um, but I think because they weren't so closely connected they weren't a mass movement so much as the leftist groups were, and they weren't so closely connected to people. Um, I think they they had sort of, they didn't really have territorial influence, unlike the leftist groups, who, I mean, in some parts of Istanbul declared that they'd set up a, a liberated zone, um, or that they'd. Declared that they'd set up a, a self-managing part of Istanbul where they were now, in control of the situation, and they were the people who would be making decisions about future housing development in that in that suburb.
1: So, how how generally would the you know government re- respond to this? Um, let's say you know some group declares an area area to be a liberated zone. Um, what sort of police response or lack of response would tend to happen in a situation like that
0: yeah so as in turkey today turkish politics it's not like the us or australia which is a, is a form of federation um turkish politics has is a very centralized political system there's the the parliament which is no uh is the chief decision-making body. And the only other sovereign level of decision-making in Turkey is the council. So there's no state system. So councils in Turkey uh, are, 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 are won or lost through elections. And in the 1970s, council elections were, were vital uh, as well. So in the 1970s, even though the central government was controlled in the main, by conservative political parties with affiliated, very extreme right-wing nationalist parties supporting them in the parliament, um, the councils in Istanbul were nearly all won by the People's Republican Party. But that party itself, like everything in Turkey in these in this era, was factionalised. So just to say that the uh, the Republican People's Party won one the Greater Istanbul Council doesn't necessarily tell you about which group within the um that party got control of of the council. So Istanbul in the 1970s there's a there's a big Istanbul council like there is today, the Greater Istanbul Municipality, and then the city was divided into some other councils as well. So those councils had interesting relationships with the the um, this let's say the leftist movements, um, the leftist movements, of course, in one way, the very the, and the had had certain types of critique of parliamentary politics as being, um, you no, know, a type of bourgeois politics or a politics that was designed to you no know, stop the revolutionary movement. On the other hand, um, the councils had bulldozers. The councils had the facilities to make streets. The councils had the facilities. To get control, to to bring cement in. I mean, there was a whole lot of things that in the shanty towns, the councils uh, were actually officially responsible for. As these shanty towns sort of grew, as as people moved into a new area, uh, they they needed all these sort of basic urban amenities, which the councils were responsible for. So, in yeah, the real politics of relationships between. And a liberated zone and the council, if it wasn't a hostile council, was sort of interesting, um, and they, uh, yeah, they may have been inv- involved in various forms of, of cooperation as well. I mean, I did some interviews with people who were involved in in the council politics of Istanbul in 1970s. One of the interesting thing about the council politics is, was was that the the people's the Jehepeh, the People's Republican Party, was factionalized and one of the dominant factions in Istanbul, um, inspired by council work that was going on in countries in Europe, um, they established a new council movement. They called called it a new a new municipalism. And that munis- that new municipalism that they were trying to um to roll out in istanbul was was a very leftist type of people's oriented services council politics so in in one way yeah I, sh- I should have shown in the book that the um the councils as well were really interesting fulcrums of political um activism, so uh, they had yeah we could say they had interesting relations, sometimes antagonistic. With the leftist movements in control of parts of the cities that they had declared you know, a liberated zone. Some other councils who were controlled by the right, rightist parties obviously were very unsympathetic to, to other groups of activists in, in their suburb. Um, and then the more central institutions of policing, like the gendarmerie, who had nothing to do with Istanbul, um, they were very anti uh, those. In those groupings that were you no know, dominant in the Ghettocondes, and so there was a lot of conflict coming from the police, the gendarmerie, etc., into into those suburbs.
1: So you're describing a, a really highly polarized uh, a moment in, in time. Yeah. To what extent could groups cro- uh, could cross group fraternization occur? I mean, could one friends with a rival someone from a rival group or party or was this something that was pretty strictly controlled
0: good question so in in the book I write a I write about three three particularly intense zones of political activism one as we've just spoken about is council politics um, and so council politics were in the main, especially in in the in the less wealthy parts of Istanbul, were all controlled by by left oriented people in in the in the official party political in the JHP. Um, and those those groupings. So so council politics, I think, was characterised by some forms of cooperation and probably movement in and out a little bit. I mean, I, I wouldn't exaggerate it because, as you say, it was a really polarised time and a sort of an extreme time, an extreme time of, of where um, loyalties to political groupings and also sort of loyalties to the, to the spoils that political activism may, may bring in a very disorganised and a sort of formless city. So those loyalties were very strong. Another arena of politics was, of course labor factories um and the union movement. so there's another whole politics involved in 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 union and labor organization as you say this it, it, i mean Turkey is i my experience is, is that it's always a ferociously polarized political society um and in the 1970s, there was three maybe four union confederations. There was the main uh, union confederation which which went back to the 1960s. There was then a breakaway from that which which called themselves the revolutionary sort of you know syndicate of unions confederation
1: supposedly
0: the the right wing nationalists set up their own union confederation though I have sort of my doubts about whether that was a very genuine um, grouping. I mean people used to say that they would send in people to you know bash up unionists and then claim that if you to send then claim to the workers that you could vote for the, their representatives. Um, and then there was a very sort of incipient Muslim union confederation. So yeah, but the union politics, the the labour organising, the, the striking, the 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 whole nineteen that seventy to seventy five to to nineteen eighty, the massive politics involved in striking for better conditions, for better wages, for forms of better forms of health, um, facility etc. That was a another great arena of of Turkish politics, and then the third one is sort of the 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 gajachondos or the shanty towns and and what was going on in them now robert interestingly yeah probably all of those arenas are characterized by both really extreme forms of separatism and yet some forms of movements between groups in the shanty towns it seemed to me that people people normally said it was really hard to move move from one political grouping to another um the loyalties were strong and um it was apparently no frowned frowned upon even to have relationships with people, you no know, friendly relationships, let alone other more intense relationships, with activist cross factions. Um the union the union movement wasn't quite like that, though. It was very factionalized as well. And of course, the Turkish Communist Party in the 1970s had very close links with the revolutionary union confederation um so there was forms of separatism going in union movements as well because factories would vote for example for which union um would would be able to represent workers um and if there was two confederations vying or two two unions linked to the different federations vying for to win the the workers election um to get control of say the Collective bargaining processes that were legally instituted. Um, then there was a lot of of yeah hostility between representatives of different union groups as well. So, yeah, look, it, it it's clear that in the interviews with with activists that um, antagonism between people ostensibly who we could say from our perspective were all trying to reform, to, to, to radicalize society. Um, yeah, the, the forms of uh, aggravation between those
1: groups was, was very intense. So you, you cover uh, a lot in this book. It's, it's really an excellent contribution. And uh, I, I know that a lot of our, our readers are going to be excited to to pick this up. Um, were there any themes that we, that we didn't, uh, cover that you'd like to, um, address? Maybe I could just say
0: something about the, the way that I organized the argument, because that will sort of cover, that'll cover the sort of the, yeah, the, the core of it. Um, uh, one one early chapter looks presents a history of istanbul an absurd enterprise but um basically a very selective history which says okay the focus of the book is istanbul 1976 to 1983 actually i'll come up to to that that 1983 part in a tick um so one part of the book presents a history which says Istanbul in the in how did how did Istanbul get to be what it was like in 1975 so it's sort of a history of the built environment a history of urban planning a history of spatial politics and a and a history of sort of political movements which which is the background for the the decade which is the focus of the book um then as we've as we've alluded to there's a couple of chapter 3 or 4 chapters which are looking at the main arenas of political conflict the the um the militant repertoires the the production of space the spatial politics in istanbul and so that is in particular focusing on the gettoges on factories and municipalities as being sort of three arenas and then there's a an, an interesting question around political factions. So, actually, I have a chapter which is on uh, ideologies and factions and militants, and basically you know, asking the question about what was it like to be a militant in in these very ferocious political factions, um, and what was the relationship between political factions, the things they were doing, and political ideologies, and of course because my focus is always on the militants, is how those political ideologies were also sort of picked up or, or no, not understood or something by militants themselves in the, um, in the groups. The last, the last chapter, actually, the last two chapters in the book covers something that we haven't spoken about at all, and that is um, first uh, the military coup, the intervention on twelfth of September nineteen eighty, and then what it was like to live in Istanbul under conditions of martial law. What were the spatial politics of martial law in Istanbul? Um so yeah, Rob, we that that in itself is a really fascinating you no know, it was fascinating to write that those couple of chapters and there's and a whole really interesting um, another aspect of sp- of spatial politics in this time.
1: So, um, is this, this is your second book that you've written? Uh, is this the third one? Yeah. Third. Yeah. Sorry, oh, so sorry. I did write um,
0: another book here on, um, on, uh, uh, on sort of, uh, an examination perhaps of, of Turkish nationalism. Um, and, also on kemalism as a political program especially in, in relationship to to um the kurds yeah
1: <laughs> okay so now that you've you've have uh, three books that are out do you have any advice that you would give to either someone who's working on their their phd or someone who's working on their first book project you know is there something that you wish that you knew you know when you were starting on book number one. Um, well, because
0: because I, I work in the discipline of anthropology, um, and I know that listeners to this podcast may be people who are who are training in political science, history, and maybe Ottoman studies or, or Turkish studies, um, and the methodologies of all of those disciplines are. Are particular to themselves in some way, and of course, lots of things are transdisciplinary. Anyway, uh, yeah, mainly, I guess I I could think and about what it's like to do. To, to, I mean, to to work from from a methodology that that privileges fieldwork workers its as one of its core. Um ways of gathering data, not that I like that word, but um of course, me anthropology or the type of anthropology that I like in any way is really also a type of history, um probably like like most people now in anthropology i don't think anyone would think that you could understand anything without thinking really carefully about the history of it of its no of its emergence and in a way actually i reckon i could say that this book is a is a history of the political present um because it's not just a history about what happened in istanbul in the 1970s it's a history about how the things that happened then um configure the, the types of, of events that that you that people are living through in the present so to go back to the question look for anthropologists Students, fieldwork is obviously still the core, the, the core method. Um, I think fieldwork is an incredibly valuable and incredibly powerful methodology. Um, I think that this book, for whatever its flaws are, um, the, the the virtues of the book come about because, unlike nearly all previous writings, mainly coming out of political science, about about this this decade, the book actually is based upon field work with people who lived through the those years and, and therefore gives us gives us a completely different account to to what journalists were writing about it and then pre after that to what academics themselves write about when they look at the political programs of you no know, the Turkish Communist Party. Or they look at the political programs of the fascists and then say this is the main you no know, issues that people were fighting over. So yeah, I don't know. It's a long roundabout way of answering that of the question, Robert. Sorry that. Um, yeah, for anthropology students, uh, of course, fieldwork is, is is vital, and it should be still the core of the of your work that you produce, um, and that of course, though you supplement it with a proper historical sensitivity. Which is actually just a proper historical sensitivity to people's own lives themselves, because people themselves are historical. Historical, we're historical beings, um, and so the the way that we think about anything in the present, which seems to be the immediate focus of of fieldwork and anthropology, is only like the tip of an iceberg, literally, um, compared to the 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 prehistory of that movement, which is equally important. Um, that's probably not very helpful for for people. because um, 'cause I'm not sure I mean there's so many other things I guess that that would be useful for students to know when they to think about how you change your dissertation into a book. Oh, Robert, okay, one thing. Well I say this to my PhD students. I basically say it's a complete waste of time if you write a dissertation that then you have to sort of de jargonize. Um, and simplify and somehow or other and take out the theory sections if you're going to change it into a book that a publisher will want to publish. So it's much better to just write write your thesis as if it's the book anyway. Of course, I know that dissertations have a different audience. In the first instance, they have to go out to the examiners, or I don't know how it's different in the US compared to Australia, what um, to your examining committee. Um, so in the first instance, you have to satisfy the requirements that they will will want of a a piece of intellectual work. But it would save so much time if people wrote their thesis in the most approachable uh, manner so that you didn't then have to sit down and know when you approach a publisher, say, yeah, I can give you, in one year, I can give you my revised dissertation because I've got to take out all the dissertation type elements. So yeah, maybe that'd be my one bit of gratuitous advice. Write your thesis as if it's, the book that you're going to send away to the publisher.
1: Thanks. I, I think that a, a, lot of, a lot of graduate students that are listening to this will, will keep that in mind. So we've taken up a lot, a lot of your time today. Um, as is the traditional final question on the New Books and Middle Eastern Studies podcast, what are you working on now?
0: Okay, so nice question. Two things. Of course, though, uh, the first one, which is to continue work in Istanbul, is actually difficult to do at the moment, given that probably, like with you, Robert, um, all travel to to Turkey, actually all travel outside of, even interstate travel now, has been um, prohibited by my university. Um, So, yes, I I am planning, (laughs) once I can do some, once I can get back to Istanbul, which is always difficult with teaching responsibilities, etc. I'm planning to do a, a new project on tr- Turkish trade unions, um, trade unionism, etc. But again, I think I, I would like to do it as a type of phenomenological study of trade unionisms, a uh, trade unionism, sorry, and trade union and the work they do. So I'd, I'd like, in my fantasy, in my fantasy world, to embed myself um, in in a union within one of the confederations and to do some proper field work um, in that area. So that's sort of the the ongoing stuff to do with Turkey. The other thing that I'm working on, which I reckon is really interesting at the moment, is that in our department, we've been running a whole series of seminars around the question of of self alteration. Um, So we've been sort of doing reading groups In the department on on neoliberalism, the certain the certain promises that neoliberalism holds out that if you if you if you engage in certain types of you know self care, certain types of of um, what's the word sort of husbanding your resources, self transformation processes that you can become a different type of person, Um, even if society doesn 't change uh, as as everything we 've been talking about is is about political movements that that don 't believe that and think that the only way that people 's lives will change is if you change the broader context of the of the political structures they 're living in so in a way this this thing that we 're doing in the department around the anthropology of self alteration. Cross-cultural projects of self-alteration, religious projects of self-change, political projects of self-change, etc., is in some ways related to to the things we've been talking about, but it's a it's um, looking at a whole range of case studies of sort of ways that people can alter their understanding of the world by engaging in new forms of of um, projects that change their their perception of the world, for example, Um, when people learn a musical tradition, they begin to hear the world differently. And so it raises interesting questions about what forms of self-alteration do apprenticeship style, aesthetics, traditions enable for people. So yeah, that's the the sort of a a more general um, empirical and theoretical uh area that i'm working on and thinking about just at the moment
1: yeah these sound like really great projects um well hey thank you so much for being on the show today i i enjoyed the book and uh i really enjoyed the talk too robert thanks so much
0: for hosting me thanks so much for the invitation um yeah and it's a it's a pleasure to talk about the book yeah and the and the, the the lives of the people that it tries to describe Thanks so much.
1: Great. And that was Christopher Houston talking about his new book, Istanbul, City of the Fearless, Urban Activism, Coup d'Etat, and Memory in Turkey. Goodbye for now.